From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Swedish British journalist, filmmaker, political writer, and author of five books, Pella Neuroth Taylor, on today's News Talk TNT. Hello there. My name is Pella Neuroth Taylor, and I'm going to talk to Professor Eric Olson, whom I met first time when I was doing a documentary about feminism in Scandinavia a few years ago. Um, when I first arrived in Sweden, uh, having been away for decades practically, I found that cancel culture had taken over to an extraordinary degree not seen in the Anglo-Saxon countries. Now I think the Anglo-Saxon countries have taken over and raced ahead, but back then it was almost a kind of novelty, almost as if Sweden, a country of innovators and people looking always to the future, had been trialed by someone, some great force or other, for this experiment in, in wokeness, early wokeness. I remember uh, my girlfriend ran a theater club uh, in a small town. And we went to this national performance um, theater day where all the local companies provided their wares or showed up their wares. And every every play and every musical had some kind of gay theme or woke theme or, or something. And this um, theater director, the concert hall director, who was a sort of very solid looking, regional looking man with his uh, mustache and he was put on a tutu and um, which was obviously not his normal garb, more used to be wearing a suit and tie, but also he was uh, felt obliged between every performance to talk about everybody's equal value. Now, any any person in Sweden watching this will know that this was almost like a mantra spoken several times a day on Swedish television and almost at every public speech or, or something. And it, this phrase, everyone's equal value, was sort of top-down um, instructed almost uh, at, at the very time when Europe was suffering this enormous um, wave of refugees from the Middle East, uh, partly as a result of the West's wars, um, which changed the country demographically in a very short time. So from 2015 to 2017, this small town that I'm in um, changed from a place where there were almost uh, no non-white faces to one where at certain times of day and non-white faces were a majority. Um, the only places where these were not noticed were in, in the big cities, um, bohemian quarters where politicians and writers and journalists professing multiculturalism lived. And the, they were the most white postcodes in the country. Anyway, um, it was a, a very lonely period intellectually. And I, I remember there were some alternative media sites where you could actually discuss the issue of uh, everyone's equal value because it was uh, actually a mistranslation of the phrase a regard for everyone's equal dignity, I think, which was in the UN Declaration of Human Rights uh, in 1948, which meant you don't give, no one has access to the same um, property rights, and um, but they everyone is allowed to be treated with equal regard to everyone else, or equal dignity, I should say. So you should be kind and humane. But what it didn't mean was that the whole world's population had access to the welfare states of the Western world and their and their public goods or their their welfare goods, and it also and obviously that's had enormous ramifications because if you interpreted it that way, it meant that by by UN declaration you had to have open borders to Europe and obviously in in Africa you own one dollar a day and in in Europe one dollar 
doesn't get you anything. You, you can earn quite a lot from being on the welfare state. So, I mean, it's, it's just a technical problem, even if you disregard the humanitarian issue. I mean, you can be a humanitarian and believe in everyone's equal regard without believing that you should have open borders. Anyway, I found a, a person who thought along similar lines when I met um, a Professor Erik Olsson at, at Lund University, Sweden's top university, and he has the top position at that top university. Uh, far too clever for me. He's a professor of logic and philosophy and things like that. But where I could understand what he was talking about was the way that this, this equality mindset had seeped over into academia, where uh, you'd gone from a, a culture of equal opportunity, equal access to, let's say, whether you're a woman or, or black or whatever, to to take to do things and and uh, try and achieve um, according to sort of rigorous standards of of science entry to being to uh, a culture of equal outcomes. That is, no matter how good or bad you were, you were allowed a place on that scheme or that science team or whatever. And uh, Professor Olson felt that this was terrible for, for scientific competition on which uh, the Western world's progress is based. And um, progress is needed if, if you're going to help the weakest in society. Um, it's, not, it's not a sort of option for us to run the world according, run the uh, world of technology, innovation, science, and mathematics according to sort of socialistic equality principles. And um, you could say that um, the Western world, although we've committed a lot of aggression and a lot of bad things, um, our success and has been based on the Enlightenment policy of may the best idea win, uh, and you compete for the best idea, and then you put aside your ego, and if someone else has a better idea, uh, let that idea forward. And that was the academic training he'd had. He'd spent a lot of his early career in, in Germany, I think, and he felt that in Germany that was still the case, whereas in Sweden he felt that you couldn't have those kind of discussions uh, in a frank way about technical mathematical issues, the details of which I couldn't possibly tell you, without it becoming a sort of workplace bullying issue. So what we are going to talk about today is Eric Olson's almost lonely campaign, which he's able to do by virtue of his very high and senior position at the university, to try and restore the dignity of uh, open debate and he will tell us how that's gone and the pushback he's been receiving and what he thinks the future of the university is like unle uh, unless we scotch this crazy equality drive. This is Pelineros at TNT Radio. Your voice heard here. The government needs to step up and do its job. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. So I'm here with... Uh, Eric Olson, tell us about what you've been up to since we last saw you. Uh, in we, We've interviewed you for our documentary, Cancel Nation, and now you've gone ahead and written a book in Swedish and basically continued your project of of um, saving the university. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, uh, so I'm continuing with uh, my work on monitoring academic freedom in Sweden. So that's what, uh, what I did before as well, but we are... Now, quite a few people in uh, in Sweden are worried about the situation here, so I'm not as lonely as I used to be, I think, in in uh, pushing these issues. And uh, there's also actually some uh, response from the Swedish government now. So now we have a right-wing government, as you know. Previously, we had the left-wing government. And the right-wing government is uh, more interested in academic freedom, you know, and securing meritocracy. 
and things like freedom of speech, things like that. So there's actually something happening now, which I think is a positive development. So that's one thing which is happening since we talked last time. Then the other thing is that, as you mentioned, I'm writing a book now together with a colleague on the on the situation in Sweden generally regarding what I call soft values. So the, the soft values are these are values like being uh, you know tender-minded, being kind, being you know understanding, inclusive, and things like that. And on the other hand, you have the hard values like meritocracy, the best person should have the position, you should have freedom of speech and things like that. So what we see in Sweden now is that, uh, I mean, up to this point, the soft values have been uh, much more successful than the hard values. So they have been uh, competing yeah. out or out competing the, the hard values. So that's, and what I, what the question in the book is why this has happened. So we try to go to the bottom of things and uh, actually look at the research on which might be relevant to answering this question. So that's basically my project at the moment. Are, are you going I mean, the F word, the feminism word or the female word, do you think some of all these, the sort of um, reluctance to engage in the kind of hardball intellectual academic debate that you grew up with some decades ago, that's as weakened somehow because of what you, the, the female nature, the, the, mm. the growing female representation in academia. Do you want yeah, to tell I us a little bit about this? Yeah, and, the, and the, you know, people don't talk about this, but uh, I think it's important to talk about the female representation in academia. And the, if you look at the, this over time, you see that, uh, I mean, there has been a massive change in this respect. You know, so now we have among students, for instance, uh, in uh, all in uh, all Swedish academia, 60% female representation, and it's it's growing all the time. So, so this is a quite a different situation than it used to be. And also among uh, teachers and staff, we have a majority of uh, women now. In the, and of course, in the, in the humanities and in the social sciences, so this is, a, this is a, basically. Can you give us some? Uh, yeah, you basically have a complete uh, female dominance in many areas. And of course, this is tied to the to the fact that we now have this soft value culture and uh, uh, the emphasis on inclusion and other female values. So we have, I think, we have to start talking a bit talking about this uh, demographic development. And I think that actually underlies this uh, this uh, uh, value transition from soft to uh, from hard to soft values. Sorry. Is there anything good to be said for this transition to soft values? Well, of course, it's always nice to have a you know nice working environment where no no one is criticizing anyone else and so on. So you can easily get accustomed to that kind of environment because it's, it doesn't demand a lot of you of you as, a, as an academic. You can do your work, you know, and, 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 and you will still be, have have your position and you can go home and just relax and basically also relax at work. So it's uh, very useful in that respect <laughs> because it's. Uh, if you want to do real academic work, of course, you have to put in an effort. And putting in an effort is always, I mean, always requires that you invest energy in your work. But uh, the soft value culture, the feminine culture, as I call it, uh, doesn't require that. So you can basically go and do your, I mean, you do your work and everything will be just fine. Hmm. Can you give us a concrete example? Bring us inside the common room of, of Lund University. I say that because uh, I talked to one of your colleagues a few years ago, and he said that uh, no one dares open their mouth in the common room. I mean, that's where the academics meet, because there's this sort of censorious culture where people are watching each other like hawks in case they make commit some verbal aggression. Uh, 
and everyone plays it very safe. And that actually his most interesting conversations at the university were with the kitchen guys because they were completely, he went down for lunch and they were open and free to think and say what they wanted because they had nothing to lose. They had the bottom jobs in the hierarchy. And I mean, that's a terrible, what, what does that tell you about the university on which we all pay our tax money into in, 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 with the aim of creating the best minds for the next generation? Mm, yeah. So, uh, of course, I know the situation in my own department best. And here, I, so I try to to entertain this uh, culture of freedom of speech and so on in my own subject. But and I, uh, but I know that in many other subjects, we, we do, I mean, you're expected to yeah, defend certain positions, you know, often so-called progressive agendas and feminist positions and the critical race theory and things like that. And you're not supposed to criticize uh, that kind of of uh, academic, uh, I mean, uh, subjects and, and ideas. So uh, uh, I think it's, uh, it's getting, I mean, it's, it's not a, a healthy situation at all. And I think that the Lund University, where I, I work, is still a rather la- large university, one of the largest. And here, at the larger and older universities, you still have, I mean, a culture where you can actually, in some subjects, at least speak, speak your mind. But uh, go to the smaller universities the situation is even worse you know so it's uh, it's uh, it's not a good situation at all but uh, uh, are, I mean I'm at least trying in, in my case to to foster an environment where PhD students and others can actually speak their mind and not be censored but I know that this is uh, probably I mean, a rare situation in Swedish academia today so you feel that your department is a, is a rare bastion of free speech and, and yeah, that's what I, brutal that's criticism, what I feel, yeah. like. Yeah, and this, of course, this is also connected to the fact that uh, in my department we have a, a more uh, masculine uh, population, as it were, among the staff. So we are not uh, completely feminine or, or dominated by women here. So, uh, and I think that uh, I mean, it must be said that this has had an effect on our department. But, Tell us uh, how. Yeah, still, but I know. I think that as soon as you have a, do- a female dominance in an area, you, I mean, the female values and softer values will also dominate in that area. So you will have less freedom of speech. Or let's put it like this: everyone is for freedom of speech in principle. But uh, if you have a conflict between freedom of speech or some other hard value, then uh, in the end, uh, with some soft value or some, uh, you know, not hurting people's feelings and so on, then the softer value will always, I mean, uh, win in the, in the, in the in the female environment. Uh, so that's the problem that you have because, uh, and that's what we don't see clearly in my department at the moment, but I think that the development is probably going in the more female direction here as well. But uh, as long as I'm here, I will at least <laughs> defend the, the traditional so, academic values. Do you have a reputation as a sort of a dictator or something or a, a bad guy or Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> That's the oh, favorite no word of this progressive well, left, you know. Well, I, I don't think so because, uh, I mean, my seminars are always full. So <laughs> they, they are always crowded. So I don't think that I'm that way. But I, but I mean, what... people come to, to my area because they really want to have, I mean, the old, I mean, real good old fashioned uh, academic work, you know, hard work, uh, discipline, and uh, uh, competition and things like that. Do you, because one of the things that you talked about uh, was the dominance, not only in the academia, academia of, of women, um, 
but which is okay if they were good enough. But you, wouldn't you produce a paper saying uh, that um, people who'd been promoted to professorships in Sweden, if they were female, had fewer papers published than their male counterparts who got that position, which is all fine if it's a if it's not a zero sum game, but it is a zero sum game in a way because for every no doubt nice and hardworking and and you know genuine sure. women aspirant professor there's a there's a really hardworking mm. guy who misses out he didn't get that job yeah. Yeah. and that's uh, tell us a little bit about that finding yeah well, this is a study which was carried out actually by one of my colleagues uh, guy madison who is a, a psychology professor and he so he looked at six different areas in Swedish academia and they looked at two who got the professorships and and um, his result was exactly what you mentioned that uh, the female uh, candidates who got the professorships, they were all, I mean, uh, generally less qualified than the male uh, counterparts. So, uh, mm. and this uh, uh, highlights the situation in Swedish academia today that uh, people are hiring females uh, because they are females, which is the, uh, exactly the wrong way to think about this. And I mean, having said that, of course, there are a lot of female uh, professors who are extremely competent, but these are, these are statistical results, and of course, and it, it doesn't concern every single individual professor. But I think it's, a, it's actually it's a warning sign I mean, when you have that kind of result, you know, coming out from statistical findings. But, uh, I think we should be worried about uh, how we view meritocracy and uh, how we can uh, secure, I mean, the competence in the, uh, the professors and the... So, uh, and uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen a shift in, in that respect. I think that uh, this problem is continuing to be uh, continue to be a problem in Sweden, and I, I haven't seen anything being done actually about it. When you're putting together science teams, when you're applying for grants, does it is it absolutely necessary to pay regard to political requirements about balance, gender balance, over quality of the team? It, it used to be uh, it used to be that way. So uh, I'm not quite sure. I mean, the last time I applied myself, it wasn't a requirement to have to check that kind of box. But uh, if we go back a few years, that it was a requirement. But uh, so what? But it's uh, the situation is complex because I think it's there is an implicit requirement that you should uh, I mean uh, adjust, adjust to the I mean, a progressive agenda in your applications. And if you look at the people and projects who got funding from the Swedish Research Council this year, I mean, they were all in that spirit, you know, so right. all about, I mean, feminist critiques of this and that, you know, and, and so I, think, I, think that, I think the plurality of thought would be, uh, be I mean, would be a, a great thing to have and, and not just, I mean, funding things that are in a certain political uh, area, so that's what I would like to have, but I, that's not what I see now, I see what, that there is a a great, I mean, uh, great conform, conformism, conformism in, 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 in what is being funded in Sweden today. I mean, I'm often, uh, I often criticize Sweden from an outsider's perspective, but I mean, let's face it, Sweden is still one of the most successful and prosperous countries in the world. So it hasn't really damaged the country that much. Or do you see that innovation or whatever you want to call it, Nobel Prizes or whatever metric you want to choose is going down because of this equality preference over over excellence the interesting thing about sweden is that you have a, a division in the i mean in terms of the state on the one hand and the industry on the other hand in terms of masculinity and femininity so the, the state is almost all, all feminine you know so 
more than 50% of all employees are, are women, and uh, in many areas there's a, dom- a strong dominance of women. Even in the highest offices, you have women everywhere. But if you look at the industry, it's actually much exactly male-dominated. So the, the Swedish industry is, is, in my view, very, very productive and very successful for the reason that uh, the people who are working there are actually very interested in doing that kind of work. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the in the in the state sector, you know, you we always get the work that is compatible with uh, your family situation. And of course, uh, women have different priorities in terms of what they see in, in the job. You know, they, they they prioritize job security and things like that. That's why why we end up with the with the female state sector and the, and the male uh, male industry sector. But of course, these two are are interdependent in interesting ways. So. Because the industry is dependent on on a functioning state in terms of, well, in terms of providing the infrastructure, for instance, for various things, you know, the roads and, 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 and being able to commute to your work and things. So, and these things, we're actually seeing now that these things are perhaps not breaking down, but uh, they are becoming more problematic to secure than they were before. So, uh, there are certain examples now in the Stockholm area where people haven't been able to commute to their work anymore because of the of the problems in the in the in the state sector in the in the communities. Uh, Professor Olson, uh, we'd love to have you back on for uh, when your project is finally completed in May, and um, I wish you all the best of of luck in the production and printing of it. And I'm sure we'll have you back in a few months. Thank you very much. Thank you very this much. This is TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media like Telegram, who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40. California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a thousand dollar a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%, you know, 99.8% survival, rather than the 3 or 4% mortality that the, the people were saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot helped us all understand one thing. 
This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them, this is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. next steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hello, this is Pella Nerald taylor at TNT Radio, and I've got my next guest who is from California, but our theme continues to be Sweden, but in a more lighthearted vein. And that is uh, Swedish music and its enormous success around the world. Um, I think um, Sweden is the third largest exporter of music after the UK and the US. Uh, sorry, Australia. <laughs> um, and everyone, of course, is very familiar with ABBA, I think, is uh, there's possibly not a person alive, at least not in Australia, you know, where they have a special fan base. Um, but they've also produced many more recent hits, the Swedish music industry. One of the more interesting um, artists in the in the Swedish sky is a guy called Max Martin, whom I'd never heard of actually until about a year ago. And he has, uh, works behind the scenes, has, has penned many of the hits of the big American pop stars. And he uh, his style is very much in that mel melancholic Swedish sadness and happiness combined style that you also see in ABBA. So he's an heir in, in true Swedish musical tradition. Um, but uh, for some reason, Professor Hamamoto is a cultural critic and has uh, a YouTube channel which explores uh, down the rabbit holes of practically every single interesting cultural phenomenon going, has devoted quite some time in looking into this uh, Max Martin figure. So, Professor Hamamoto, tell us a little bit about Max Martin and, and why you're so interested in him. Well, it all began with a poignant pop song called uh, I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys. I checked into it. I have it on my playlist and play it through my, on my car and my home system. It's a pop tune that was penned by Max Martin, whose real name is Sundberg. And uh, there's a partner of his who's American nationality named uh, Dr. Luke. And I did some uh, looking into it, and I found that uh, in his day and, and continuing to the present, uh, although recently overshadowed by uh, Taylor Swift, 
who we can talk about in a moment because she's part of a larger um, NATO, uh, Pentagon, <laughs> United Nations psychological uh, U.S. military operations, it seems, because her catalog was bought by uh, the Carlyle Group. And most of your viewership would know that the name Carlyle is, is uh, attached to world wars and all kinds of, of intrigue. And they were going to use her, Taylor Swift, that is, who's currently in the midst of a huge record-breaking, money-generating tour called Eris. She went ahead and recorded every single one of her first six albums so that she could liberate her contract from this uh, quote unquote manager named Scooter uh, Brown, who, by the way, also discovered quote unquote uh, little Justin Bieber plunking away on his guitar. And you know what happened to him, right? He was um, very, uh, let's say, a favorite of let's uh, call them minor attracted adults, right? So we'll stay out of trouble. That's, that's the euphemism that's being used currently, right? So I see Max Martin through this larger lens, which I call uh, cultural forensics. And then more recently, and I send you a, sent you a file folder of articles, academic articles, trying to explain the, the fact that Sweden is the number two or three uh, largest exporters of pop music. I thought the United States was the undisputed king of that, but it's actually Sweden. Mm. Um, and the, the capstone for me just came in recently when I when I read this article that Spotify, which not many people know, is a Swedish company, uh, is being accused of harboring um, uh, transnational crime syndicates in drugs and um uh, human trafficking right and we have in our own conversation talked about the uptick in crime in sweden which is americans uh, like to think is a peaceable kingdom that uh, runs on social democratic principles and as you have stated many times has not had a war in 200 years and they make volvos and they're very kindly and beautiful people and all of that is true but because of the issues that you have written so nicely about in your set of books about immigration, open borders, and uh, the looming threat of NATO. And that's why I bring in Taylor Swift, because there's a connection there between the Pentagon and the NATO using that as a uh, psyops. Wait a minute, just to sort of yeah, bring you up or sum summarize, are you sort of saying that Max Martin is also part of this psyop? Uh, uh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. And um, is this speculation or do you have some evidence? Uh, I don't have any hard evidence, but the fact that he's part of this sort of um, European competition, Western European pop competition, and uh, that the government itself is subsidizing his work. He's supposedly a private agent uh, applying his trade, but it seems that the Swedish government itself is uh, actively involved. With it. And when you're talking about Swedish government involved, involvement, you're talking about U.S. involvement, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like having um, uh, NATO run these uh, submarine exercises up in the Baltic, right? Yeah. Which we thought was part of a pending Soviet invasion, right? Hmm. But there was a different hidden hand behind all this. So Can, we're can I just interrupt you briefly because... Please. 
Please do. I mean, in the 1960s, I wouldn't have believed you a few years ago, but I mean, apparently there was this um, Congress of Cultural Freedom in, in the, the, the CIA sponsored Jackson Pollock and um, apparently even the LSD movement, which was a way of blunting revolutionary trends in the US by by doping up the young people. And CIA had an office in Hyde Ashbury in San Francisco. And that's well established now in books that have been published decades later by quite sort of sober-minded uh, investigative writers. But you're sort of saying, well, you're giving us the up-to-date stuff, what's happening now in the 2020s. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, Pele, you are alluding to uh, Frances Stoner uh, Saunders, the um, cultural Cold War. She's a mm -hmm. British critic, and she documents all that. There's a more recent book uh, by a guy named, uh, uh, I forgot his last name, but it's called Chaos. And uh, most of what you're alluding to was was engineered it was orchestrated by the intelligence agencies and um it's full spectrum it goes from mainstream including uh, for example russiagate which is south asian investigator cash patel details in this recent book it's called government gangsters you know government as we're used to but also the soft side which is mm -hmm. the popular culture and that happens to me you know, be my area of expertise that I pioneered by studying it as an academic uh, discipline before it became popular. Now everybody thinks they're a popular culture expert. Just like today, we have this phenomenon called pop-up pundits, just like these pop-up stores that show up during Christmas or whatever, in restaurants just temporarily. We're just deluged in America by these, what I refer to as pop-up pundits. So the reason why, I am um, uh, transgressing on their turf is because <laughs> I was here doing this decades before, and I was I was the mm. early casualty of the wokeism wars. Yeah, right, just to I'll say so about what, today. Yeah, what you're saying is Max Martin and Taylor Swift. They're part of this Anglo-American NATO imperial psychological operations project. With the aim of what? What are they trying to achieve? Global hegemony running through the United Nations with the NATO as a military force. The NATO stay behind forces. That has been well documented from Gladio uh, to even earlier. This is all this is part of the post-war uh, order or the Cold War, right? And the Cold War, just like Francis Stoner Saunders refers to the cultural Cold War, had those type of expressions. You mentioned Jackson Pollock, the abstract expressionist. I've subsequently learned in a recent publication called The Sullivanians that he was part of this sex cult in the upper either west or west side of uh, Manhattan. And even some of the great critics, the tastemakers, the pundits of the day, like Clement Greenberg, who were promoting uh, abstract impression, which is, by the way, used as an anti-communist um, propaganda tool. Say, oh, Russians, you're 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 doing socialist realism and writing odes to tanks and missiles, but we in America, we're we're Jackson Pollock and we're about free expression. Uh, but he was a member of a cult. It was called the Sylvanians. And mm -hmm. speaking of Taylor Swift, and I'm not not making a direct comparison there, but one of the members of the Sylvanians. Um, named after Han uh, Harry Stack Sullivan, an American psychologist. And uh, an early um, 
observer, what today we call mind control. Uh, but one of the members of the Sullivanian, uh, Sullivanian cult, and they lived all together. This is like the Manson cult, but they weren't violent, I don't think, uh, was uh, Judy Collins. Do you remember wow. her? Speaking she, wasn't she a, what we call them bonk buster writer? I mean, she used to write um, sort of romantic, trashy airport novels. Is that right? Judy Collins? Uh, no, Judy Collins was a pop singer. She's more in the oh. vein of a Joni Mitchell. Oh, I see. Okay, right. Yeah, she's an American uh, by nationality. Joni Mitchell's Canadian, of course, but she was sort of post uh, folk music. Um, right. Someday soon is one of the songs that she popularized on FM radio. But I was surprised to learn that she was one of the cult members. And there's this whole milieu that came out, and this is in New York City, that that informed the the supposedly leading edge uh, culture of the 1960s with. You mentioned uh, the um, the San Francisco scene with, um, you know, the LSD and all that. There were all these different so-called free clinics in the Haight-Ashbury, the, the center of mm. Dump, which uh, George Harrison visited uh, when he came uh, to the Monterey Pop Festival, I believe, and could see the degradation that was beginning to unfold. And all this, the point is, is that it was engineered. Yeah, I, I can believe that now. I mean, because why wouldn't they be? I mean, my, my father worked in advertising uh, yes. and managed to push, you know, various fairy liquid on cigarette brands. But why wouldn't that happen in, on a much larger scale where the stakes are much higher, which is the government doing advertising, as it were, propaganda uh, through the intelligence agencies? I mean, it's obvious that behavioral change, if you can propagandize people, you don't need to kill them. or you, If you can persuade them, you don't need to force them. So it's becoming increasingly obvious that persuasion and behavioral change is a remit of intelligence agencies or if they farmed it out to some subsidiary body. And I think that's probably, we should be aware of that. But let's say, I mean, if the 1960s was a period when when the Americans, let's say the CIA wanted to, to push down any revolutionary thought by, by stoking people up on LSD and drugs, uh, and uh, promoting love rather than violent change, you know, or, or, and and hanging the uh, the capitalists or whatever, um, and then also pushing this message of freedom through Jackson Pollock uh, to to as a sort of cultural part of the cultural competition, the cultural moon race between the West and the East. Uh, the West stood for freedom and free expression and intense tolerance towards crazy ways of expressing oneself. What what would be the, assuming that you're right, I mean, I haven't seen the evidence, but it's an interesting thought. What would Taylor Swift be promoting? I mean, what what's the thing that was, what's the soft power that we're all supposed to be attracted by in, in Taylor Swift? In a word, Satanism, the dark Lord. Oh, I'm not okay. exaggerating. Yeah, I've been watching her videos, which are widely available on what's called YouTube. I call it tube you because it's a silo effect. It places you in a tube. And so if you are a Swifty, which is what her fans call themselves, Swifties, and Swifty is a slang American for a guy who is a con artist, you know, a card sharper. That's a Swifty, but they call themselves Swifties. Um, so that's that's really the um, part of the uh, political revolution that America is going through. And I'm not talking it, uh, about Satanism from the perspective of a Bible Belt fundamentalist Christian perspective. I'm talking about it as a 
not just uniquely American phenomenon, but one that's being actually studied in your own country. The University of Gothenburg, by the way, has an incredible uh, new program on Western er uh, esotericism. It's a long tradition. And it goes, uh, they're studying the pagan past of countries like Sweden, the, the Norsemen. And there's this revival here. And part of it is pagan belief systems. So there's a modern constitutionally protected religious uh, movement or institution called Wicca, W-I-C-C-A. And I know that you grew up uh, substantially in, um, in Britain as well. So you might have heard the name of Gerald Gardner, who was the modern witch who articulated. He was a student of Aleister Crowley first and before he went off on his own. And right, and, and some of his work, we were talking about CIA, Central Intelligence, FBI. I'm sure MI6 was involved with their uh, psychological operations because they were the masters of it, right? Sir they Roberts. are indeed. And we will continue on the topic of MI6 and CIA after the break. This is TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The question isn't why globalist, Democrat Party mega donor, and Epstein Islander Reed Hoffman is providing so much financial support for Nikki Haley's campaign. The question is, why is Nikki taking the money? The answer, of course, is because Nikki's uniparty. She's GOPE to her core. She's for tearing down Confederate statues and changing Confederate flags. She's for digital ID, and she's absolutely against the principles of America First. She's against shutting down foreign wars. She's against shutting down our border. She's against all the things that make America great. See, the globalists allow us to have the illusion of choice, a few window dressing differences between the parties to stimulate people to cheer for Team Red or for Team Blue. But on the issues that really matter, the financial issues that matter to them, all these politicians are all the same, regardless of whether they have an R or a D after their name. We deserve better, and we need to demand better. Nikki Haley should never be allowed near the levers of power ever again. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee, and thought I'll top up with fuel ordered a coffee but while I was pumping fuel I started to get chest pains then it got worse and worse and worse so then I was leaning on the counter thinking yeah something's not quite right so then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really really hit and Joy just you know mouth do you need an ambulance and I remember nodding I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack I just thought something is seriously wrong with me here so when the cardiologist came to see me she informed me that I'd had what they call a widowmaker heart attack Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. Geopolitical commentator and investigative journalist. You're listening to Pella Neuroth Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. TNT. Hi, we're back and we're talking about the esoteric topic of Satanism. Um, but what's interesting, I mean, I'm always looking for documentation, although I know that in the world of the netherworld of intelligence agencies and dark doings, people don't write down what they're doing. 
So mm -hmm. I think we have to give a, a bit of slack to people who come out with assertions because you're up against people who are very clever and, and people who want to hide things. And we're always trying to find out the truth. Mm -hmm. So we can make claims and then we can sort of see what happens, see, see what comes out of the undergrowth after we've made our claims, like, like spiders when you turn a rock. But you're saying that... Um, so, but I'm always looking for documentation and any, anyhow, even though it's sometimes a quixotic quest, but you said that wheeling back from Satanism, that there is some, um, there is this in, in the Epstein, uh, Epstein was this guy, but maybe you can tell us who Epstein is and what has just been revealed as a sort of shocking finding that would shock a lot of people who, who, who hear about it for the first time. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I left your, uh, viewers hanging with this provocative assertion about Satanism. But before I get into Epstein, I should remind the audience that uh, the United States in the colonial period was shot through with uh, fears of witchcraft. And it's famously known that uh, there are these trials that were he held. And that's always been a substratum of American politics, even after it became a republic. And it goes, it ebbs and flows. And right now it, it reached its zenith and its apotheosis in the form of the front man, because he's just a front man, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, with, with that particular um, milieu there, right? And he belongs to intelligence. I don't need to go into details there because we all want to live long and happy lives. <laughs> but <laughs> it's publicly knowledge that he belonged to intelligence. This is what uh, Alex Acosta said, his memorable phrase. And he was... Um, appointed Secretary of Labor by President Donald Trump, and he had to resign because of his connection with letting off uh, Jeffrey Epstein um, easy for his early convictions. But there has been, as most of your audience knows, a, a uh, I think a series of four or five tranches of documents released by this incredibly patriotic judge said, we need to let this go into the public. It's not going to damage anybody's reputation or uh, otherwise compromise any pending cases. And we're finding out, see, most people are being attracted to the names. They think it's a list. It's not a list. You have to infer the 200 or same names. And many of them we already know, of course, William Jefferson Clinton appears time and time again. And there are other people who are somewhat uh, surprising, but uh, which we don't need to get into. But the point I'm making here is that let's forget the names for a moment and let's suspend our disbelief. Let's look at the narrative because that's what these documents, they're legal briefs. They, they're kind of tough reading for lay people. But it talks about uh, the prevalence of witchcraft and animal sacrifice on Epstein's island. Wow. Right. Abetted by these magicians such as David, David Copperfield, that's not his real name, of course, which, as you know, uh, is uh, named after the character of uh, Charles Dickens, which is about the squalor of orphans and unattended children, which we're seeing coming across the border by the tens of thousands, right, to, to refill the bucket of um, exploitable children in the international pedophilic drug human trafficking complex, mm -hmm. which is presided over these globalist entities that we've already alluded to. And it seems like even Sweden, kindly social democratic Sweden is implicated in it through Spotify with 
uh, a pretty good percentage of fake accounts, streaming accounts, which these uh, criminal syndicates launder their proceeds mm-hmm. and they'll transfer it to Bitcoin or whatever it might be. Let, let's just go back to Epstein. Yeah. Pardon me? Go back to Epstein and these docu- okay. documents that will be revealed or are revealed. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is not, this is my inference as an expert who's written extensively on um, uh, what I call the um, the dark side of American politics. In fact, I that's the subtitle of this book, Servitors of Empire. It's called The Dark Side of Asian America, because that's, I don't know if we're going to have time to talk about it. That's one of the key phases of the psyops that's going on right now, because as you probably know, there are not one, not two, but there are three South Asians or Indians running for the president of the United States. And in Britain itself, you know this, and I can ask you for intel on from your end, uh, Rishi Sunak. Rishi mm-hmm. Sunak is how you pronounce it. He's the prime minister. Correct. Of the UK. So wh- where does he come from? And how does someone like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy manifest? in these areas and they're they're hindus too they're not christian they're not jews they're they are coming from a a complete post-colonial uh religion of which empire uh the the british empire ruled over it and the anglo-american empire right well i mean my view of the uh, um rishi sunak's uh promotion was that the uh, tory party made great efforts to be inclusive and bring on minorities and so uh, and I'm, it's uh, harming their electoral fortunes because most of the population of Britain is still white, and mm-hmm. they sort of feel uncomfortable with a cabinet that's, whose top positions are occupied by by non-whites. And although it's the unspoken truth of the electoral politics right now with an election this year, but mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I just don't know. I mean, I'm wary about making building up whole structures of of um, I mean, a conspiracy. It might be true, but. What is the Hindu? I mean, I, I believe the, the Earth is round and not flat. For instance, yes, I know. Uh, the hidden uh, or the implied question in my assertions here, now that I have your attention, is that what is the hidden agenda? What is the real meaning of diversity and uh, uh, DEI, diversity, um, and all that? You know, the the values that corporations, ironically, are promoting. Right. That's another psyops. I was on the ground floor of racial ethnicity theory. That was my expertise. They hide, they meaning the corporate hijack, including the, the PR companies, the advertising, which is really a synonym for, for propaganda. They hijacked it. They took it over. And there's been a a transformation and using South Asians, by the way, globally, and I'll tell you why before we end the cast here, why South Asians in particular have been handpicked to, I'll tell you right now, um, I don't know if you, you remember, well, you don't, this preceded both of us, um, the film directed by George Stevens called Gunga Dean. Yeah, I've heard of it. It's a sort of 1960s film, I think. It was 30s, yeah, correct. 1939, when Britannia still ruled Hollywood, and it still does, right? There was a very close Anglo-American connection there with Hollywood. And that's why you got um, Cary Grant in American films. So Mm -hmm. he was one of the co-stars of Gunga Dean. Mm -hmm. 
along with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. This is 1939. And as you know, as a um, British schoolboy, you know Rudy the Kip, Rudyard yeah. Kipling. That was his poem. So what I'm seeing when I see the emergence of uh, figures like Rishi Sunak, who, by the way, his father-in-law is worth four billion American dollars. I say dollars because yeah. that's how the gangsters pronounce it, dollars, uh, as, as one of the co-founders of Unisys. And uh, Sunak himself got his finishing uh, before they used to go to the Vatican. Now they go to Silicon Valley, Stanford University. He got his MBA through the Fulbright program at Silicon Valley, which is not far from where I am. And Silicon, uh, Stanford University and the University of California, by the way, they were patronized by these two dowagers, widows who predeceased their filthy rich husbands. They were both occultists. And they were very much steep into uh, South Asian um, derivative uh, religions. This is why I'm I'm alluding to this here. And I've did, done talks on my wonderful channel. It's called Professor Hamamoto. Look at my playlist. I gave a talk on Jane Stanford of Stanford University. And they've always been friendly to Asia, East Asia and South Asia. Um, Professor Hamamoto, I think, uh, uh, yes. to, sorry to interrupt. I think it's interesting. I agree with you that probably a lot of truths about the world are invisible to us. Um, how much of that superstructure is 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 true or not? That's the whole point. That's the difficulty. And what you've got is a, is a, you've just given us an eagle's eye view of a system yes. of unbelievable. It's you could call it sort of globalization, and and the and the dark truth about globalization involves I don't know witchcraft and occult, mm -hmm. occultism, and that might occur. Do you right. have any problems? You've studied these things uh, for decades, and it all fits in like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle to you, where every piece has its place. But for mm -hmm. those of us who are less trained in in those cultural habits, do you find that you have sometimes difficulty persuading people that it's true? I do, and it, it costs me my job at the University of California. And the person who's responsible for that, who was was the former head of the Department of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano who was slid in to be the president of the, the University of California system. And she put word out to get her people to get this Hamamoto guy out there because we have a psyops coming down in, in 2020. We know it today is the pandemic. And I left service of the UC 2017. They had already been written into the program, as I understand. And most of these synthetic characters that have been put forth like Jordan Peterson, who has a zero academic record, by the way, I have tons of publications and I was teaching and lecturing all this. And I was way ahead of the curve so far as these martyrs at uh, Portland State College. That's me. It's Professor Hamamoto. Who lived there. So I paid for it with my professional um, sacrifice. Right. I was not the Gunga Dean. The point I was going to make about Gunga Dean is that the South Asians are being used as the Gunga Dean of the flagging contemporary British Empire, which is no longer so on, on the note of the flagging British Empire. I'd like to end here because I certainly agree with you there okay. that Anglo-American power is at the source of this and their maintenance. Well, we'd love it was fantastic for this tour d'horizon of the dark truth about the world. And maybe we'll have you on again to discover these things further. Thank you so much, Professor Hamamoto. This is TNT Radio, Helen Eroth-Taylor. Taylor.